people who care. Hello, today we are here at the Outreach Teen and Family Services Office. We're your podcast hosts, Gina and Jackie, and we're here today with Liz Ritchie. Today we're going to be discussing learning and motivation in education. We're going to kick it off with the fast five questions. So, Dr. Ritchie, do you prefer rural or urban settings? Urban. Agreed. Um, what's one Same. thing you can't live without? <laughs> Probably my cell phone because <laughs> I, not only is it how I connect with everyone, but I've started listening to a lot of books on um, through the uh different apps and that's been like my calming source when I'm yeah. doing tours and things like that. So nice. I like uh, it. turn to it for many reasons. <laughs> um, what was the last movie you watched? Oh gosh. I think the last movie I saw was Oppenheimer. Did you like it? I did. Uh, I made my husband watch the Barbie movie with my oh, daughters. Yes. So in turn, yes. he wanted to watch Oppenheimer and we both agreed that the <laughs> movie was good. <laughs> it got a bunch of awards. <laughs> um, what is your favorite hobby? I love to garden and do yard work. I think it is such a counterbalance to the way I spend my work time thinking and writing and, and grading and things like that, that um, kind of being silent and physically active is very meditative for me. Yeah. Okay. Um, and then do you like research better or instruction? I love instruction more, but I think I am at my happiest when I have a balance of the two. Mm -hmm. So if I'm only teaching, I miss doing research. And if yeah. I'm only doing research, I miss teaching. Makes sense. We would like to pause and thank St. Clair Health for being our annual sponsor for the third year of our podcast. At St. Clair Health, we're always improving, building on our commitment to face the challenges of today, making an impact on the communities we serve so we can be stronger together. St. Clair Health, expert care from people who care. So for the first half of our podcast, we're just going to be talking about you, get a little background. Um, so tell us a little bit about yourself and what sector of psychology is most relevant to you, your research, and your work. Yeah, so I am a uh, teaching assistant professor of psychology at the University of Pittsburgh, and I have a PhD in cognitive psychology. So cognitive psychology can span a wide range of areas from people who do very kind of neurosciencey research and brain imaging um, to people who study language, to people who study memory and learning. I'm in a very applied space mm -hmm. in cognitive psychology. So I study um, different cognitive and motivational processes of learning. A lot of my research is done in uh, classrooms, especially middle school science classrooms. Um, but I like to think that I'm kind of taking those really um, uh, hard principles of cognitive psychology and seeing how they apply in, in real world settings. That's awesome. Yeah. So as you just mentioned, you studied various topics throughout your undergrad at Pitt. Um, what made you gain interest in psychology and more specifically cognitive psychology as like your future path? Yeah, you know, I, I've taken a really winding path. I was never exposed to psychology in high school. We didn't have psychology classes or anything. So I was always interested in science, but also um, writing and really humanities heavy areas. So when I came to college, I expected to double major um, in a natural sciences and a humanities track. So I, I thought I'd be a physics major or a chemistry major. And then I also was interested in things like religious studies and English writing. Um, 
it was only after I took my first psychology course that I found that you can kind of combine these two spaces, <laughs> the, the ones that are really focused on the human experience and human processes and the ones that use the scientific method to understand things. Yeah. Um, and so finding that bridge, I think, really excited me about psychology. Um, but I did also major in nonfiction English writing and religious studies. And I think all of those majors were just kind of different ways to explore how humans think and process events and learn. Um, and as I increasingly grew interested in learning processes, um, I thought about careers in teaching um, or other er areas of education. And I think cognitive psychology just emerged as a way that I could really try to have an impact on um, educational systems and also be in the classroom working with students. Yeah, kind of do it all. Yeah. <laughs> um, so kind of going off that, what is your favorite part about your job? And what's one thing that you would like to do more of? So I love working with students. I find that to be by far the most rewarding. Um, I, I really enjoy thinking about research and designing studies and um, writing papers, uh, but research is a very long, slow process and there's a lot of delayed gratification. So yeah. you might come up with an idea and publish a paper four or five years later. <laughs> um, teaching, I think, is kind of the more instant gratification mm -hmm. part. You still put a lot of effort and planning into a course, but then you get to see students engaging with the materials in real time and see their reactions. And that can be tremendously rewarding. Um, and then kind of at the end of the semester, reflecting with students on their experiences, hearing back from them. I love staying in touch with mm -hmm. students. Um, and sometimes they'll, they'll, you know, keep in touch for years. I have some students who are well into their uh, careers now and, and have been out of school for a while who still kind of email me and, mm -hmm. and chat when they're in town. And, and that's really rewarding to me. Yeah. Um, fun fact, I did mm -hmm. in fact take one of her courses at Pitt. You take it if you go there. Um, <laughs> but it was, it's really cool. I feel like Jackie and I are both psychology majors, and I think it's, like, when you have a psychologist teaching your course, I always find it so interesting because they're always trying new things, trying to figure out what works, whereas some of my other courses that I've taken, it's really just, they do what works for them, and you go through the flow and everything, and, and it's fine, but it's always so cool to kind of see almost like research happening as you're, <laughs> as you're taking the course and seeing what works best, and I always find them the most enjoyable, but I guess I'm biased. <laughs> Me as well. I feel like many professors who are in the psych realm, they are very understanding and how mm -hmm. they set up their criteria definitely is very um, flexible. And so I really appreciate that. Mm -hmm. um, along with you being a professor, um, what do you think makes a good instructor and helps motivate your students to be successful? So I think caring is the number one thing. Um, viewing teaching as an important part of your job, caring about students' experiences in the course, viewing it as um, an opportunity for them to learn and develop and grow, and, and having a clear mind of what those different areas are where they might be developing skills. You know, I think it's important to recognize that not every student in the class is going to go on to become a, a PhD in your field. Um, and so simply memorizing kind of the research facts or theories of the space um, shouldn't be the only goal in the course and trying to kind of think about what can someone who's a non-major who's doing this for a gen ed requirement get out of this course or what can yeah. someone who's still on the fence about it get out of the course um, and I think listening to students asking them questions and hearing their feedback can help guide that process too. Yeah I think it's nice because we get those um OMET surveys <laughs> at the like at the middle and then the end point and mm -hmm. I feel like a lot of times I'm always like there's no way they actually read these <laughs> and like take into account and some of them I'm sure it's hard because you get like hundreds of responses mm -hmm. but um it is really cool that 
you know, in some of the smaller classes when you see like the changes happen and it kind of gives yourself some advocacy in your own learning, which, which is really nice. Um, so kind of taking a, a bit of a, sh a shift here, um, what are your thoughts on assessments and specifically standardized tests such as the SAT, ACT, PSSAs, things like that, and then how do you use it in your classroom? Yeah, that's a great question. So I'll start with kind of the good in assessment. Um, you know, I think assessment can be a motivational tool for students. I, I have definitely heard from many students that knowing they have a paper or an exam helps motivate them to work through the material carefully. And I think having some measure of accountability is always important. Even the most engaged student has a lot on their plate. And if they have a reading assignment with no accountability versus <laughs> other classes where they know they have exams, they're going to prioritize the place where they're being assessed. <laughs> Um, I also think even standardized tests can have a place in kind of formative assessment, tracking students and identifying places where they might benefit from additional intervention or additional opportunities. So, um, for example, there is a standardized test called the measures of academic progress, I believe, the MAPS tests. Mm -hmm. um, they're administered in schools in the fall, winter and spring. And they are used in kind of more comparison ways. So seeing our students hitting kind of those expected grade mm -hmm. level measures, our schools generally seeing growth in their students across the course of the year. Mm -hmm. um, but they're also really important for tracking growth in an individual student. And if you have a student who hasn't grown from the fall to the spring on those measures, yeah. um, something's not working in the classroom mm -hmm. experience. You're still going to have to dig in deeper to understand, you know, do they have an undiagnosed learning disability? Do they need additional support in some way? Do they need different kinds of opportunities? Mm -hmm. um, but it can be a really good way for tracking a large number of students consistently and identifying mm -hmm. students who may need a closer look at kind of what's going on with their learning experience. That being said, um, we also know that standardized tests can kind of be misused, I think, in a lot of yeah. ways. So using them for gatekeeping, um, there's a lot that goes into your performance on a standardized test. Um, certainly, it's a reflection of kind of the prior learning opportunities you've had, and we know that those aren't equitably distributed in our educational systems. Um, something like the SATs uh, really captures how much test taking is also a skill. And so if you have it the really benefits of taking a course on SAT prep or having a lot of practice tests, you're going to get better at the skill yeah. of taking mm -hmm. SATs. And so um, that's not likely capturing, you know, your qualities as a person or the things you're going to do in college. Sure. It's capturing how much you practiced. Um, and access to those kinds of practice opportunities is also not equitably distributed. Mm. Um, I, I think understanding what a test is really measuring is important. We also know from psychology there are other factors that disrupt your test performance and make the test not reflect what you actually know. So things like test anxiety, stereotype threat, um, these factors can take someone who actually has a wide range of knowledge and prohibits them from performing as well as they otherwise could on the test. And so you're also having these motivational and individual difference factors that are leading to tests not representing some students' abilities sure. as well as others. Mm -hmm. yeah. I, I agree completely. <laughs> <laughs> I feel like the SAT was just so overwhelming like mm -hmm. you either like i i had like i was lucky i took it the first time and i was like oh, okay like that score's fine like um i didn't want to go anywhere like crazy impressive like ivy so i was like okay perfect that's good but for a lot of my friends that were striving for reach schools and stuff it was like 
how like how can I do this 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 and like you said you brought up the courses that people take and they would you know that also takes money and everything and but it really is interesting to see how you just kind of have to learn how to read a question in a certain way and different strategies to break down I think that also applies with studying and those tools that you use in order to you know, achieve what you want on the SATs. I myself, as you mentioned, test anxiety. I struggle so much with that. So whenever I get in there and into the classroom, I blank out. And so I yeah. feel like it can struggle to accurately represent who you are and how much knowledge that sure. you learned. Um, going off of learning assessment, um, what are some subjective and objective ways you encourage learning within your classroom? It's a great question. I think it varies a lot on the type of class. So I teach everything from a 400 person introductory lecture to a small 30 person seminar with mostly juniors and seniors. And so the kinds of ways I'm encouraging learning do vary a bit from class to class. I'd say generally um, my strategies are to give students opportunities to bring in what they know and their areas of interest, their areas of expertise, and connect to the course content. And I think you can do that no matter the class size or the format. Um, so kind of trying to help them have places they can latch on, places where they feel confident already, so then they can build their confidence when they're getting into territory they don't know as well. Um, in a large lecture course where we do have exams, I also try to build in a lot of really low stakes practice opportunities. So I do use kind of in-class clicker systems <laughs> where um, I can put up a question. Students don't have to get it right. I don't want to put on the pressure or kind of expect students to have mastered content they just learned. But it's a way for them to check and to see, yeah. you know, am I understanding this? And sometimes there will be a question, half of the class gets it wrong and there's like a gasp when I reveal the answer. Um, so that's a fun way to kind of keep them engaged and also encourage them to be monitoring their understanding. Um, in smaller classes, it's fun to have discussions because then students can um, learn through the process of trying to articulate their own views and connect it to their experiences or their other readings and courses. Um, but also I think a really critical part is learning from each other. So especially in a class where we're talking about, you know, education and learning. Everyone has different experiences and perspectives, and it's sometimes easy to assume that everyone else has had the same kind of educational path or the same experiences you did. And hearing in a class of 30, the different types of schools people went to, the different types of resources they had access to, the different, you know, experiences they had in their own lives, I think can be very helpful um, and extend learning far beyond what I could do as just one person talking about the literature. Yeah, for sure. I think that was one of my favorite, <coughs> excuse me, um, parts about your course was that at first, whenever I looked at the syllabus, I was like, oh my gosh, like I'm overwhelmed by everything we're going to be doing in this semester. But then like actually being able to like lead a discussion during the course and, mm -hmm. and do different things like that. And you allowed us to kind of pick weeks uh, for different topics and put your name next to you. So I remember going through and being like, okay, like which one am I most interested in? Which was also super nice because I feel like usually when you have to do presentations or something, you're stuck mm -hmm. with whatever you're assigned with. And so it was, it was super cool and it allowed me to dig deeper into the topic, but also like leading the discussion with people, asking questions was really cool. And it kind of gave me a sense of what it's like sometimes though, to stand up there and then I would just, just stare at like <laughs> empty faces. Um, but then it's like, you, you do give it, it's like that uh, weight rule where you, you give it like 10 seconds and you let people think and then you, like hear some of like the coolest things. Like, um, but if you were to just be like, Oh, I'm, I'm overwhelmed. No one's raising their hand. Um, then you can miss out on, on those things. But yeah. 
I would like to pause and thank St. Clair Health for their generosity in sponsoring the third season of Teens Tap In. At St. Clair Health, we're always improving, building on our commitment to face the challenges of today, making an impact on the communities we serve so we can be stronger together by creating reliable resources that recognize all of our neighbors with access to the highest quality healthcare, advanced care close to home, and a shared humanity that delivers on our joint vision to create a healthier community for all. St. Clair Health, expert care from people who care. All right, so for the second half of the podcast, we will be focusing on motivation in the education field. So Dr. Ritchie, motivation is a vital part of how we become successful in education and how um, how can self-esteem and emotions play a role in a student's motivation and therefore affect their academic performance? Uh, I think those are incredibly important aspects. And sometimes when we're talking about learning, we're so focused on the cognitive parts that we don't talk enough about emotion mm -hmm. um, and motivation. So uh, Probably anxiety is the emotion that's most studied in learning research. Um, when you're anxious about something, it takes away the cognitive resources that you have available for other things. So if you're sitting there doing a math test and in your head you're thinking, oh, I'm not good at math, I'm going to fail, my grade's going to be bad, I'm not going to get into college, and, and you have all these worries, your mind is focused on those worries and that's a part of your mind that can't be doing the math problems because it is occupied with those thoughts. So intrusive, anxious thoughts actually lead to worse performance because they're sapping away those, those cognitive resources that could otherwise be applied to the test itself. Um, and there's a lot of research showing that people who otherwise would be able to demonstrate, you know, very good knowledge on a subject perform worse when they're anxious. Um, Self-esteem and a kind of related concept called self-efficacy, which is your belief that you can complete successfully a particular task, is very predictive of performance as well. When people have higher self-efficacy, they tend to perform better. They tend to persist longer in something, even when it's challenging. They tend to enjoy it more. Mm -hmm. um, and so it affects things not only like test performance, but also retention in a major or in a particular area. Um, we all encounter challenges at some point mm -hmm. in our paths. Mm -hmm. And so having that persistence is really important when things get tough. Um, there's also research showing that if you have kind of perfectionist goals that you really want to have high attainment. If you also have high self-esteem, it can actually lead to good performance outcomes. So having high goals can be beneficial. But if you have these kind of really high goals and low self-esteem, mm -hmm. it results in poorer outcomes, less, uh, you know, worse emotions around that, more anxiety and lots of bad outcomes. And so self-esteem can kind of be this moderator of, um, what kinds of effects we have when we have high goals. Um, yeah, it makes sense. But then yeah. it's also so easy to get like lost in your own worries and thoughts about your academic performance. Positive affirmations, guys. <laughs> yeah, the good news is there are lots of ways to build yes. up self-esteem yes. and self-efficacy. Having uh, experiences of success is the best way to build self-efficacy. Mm -hmm. So building in kind of easier problems or practice or ways that people can um, get that positive feedback of like, oh yeah, I can do this, yeah. then leads to higher beliefs of future positive outcomes. Yeah. And um, we know it's important. We just need to focus on bolstering it while yes. people are learning. Um, and then how do educational stereotypes factor into a student's motivation? 
So there's been a lot of research on something that's called stereotype threat. Um, this is when you are aware of stereotypes about a certain aspect of your identity. You don't need to believe that they're true. Um, you just need to be aware that other people perceive you through these stereotypes. So for example, as a woman, I might be aware of this stereotype that women are not as good at math as men. Um, I can be very confident in my own math abilities and think that, you know, I can do math well. I know it's not true. <laughs> but just knowing that other people are going to view me as a woman and expect me to do worse is going to, again, sap away those cognitive resources that otherwise could be focused on performing the task. And so there's been research um, looking specifically at gender and math. Um, men and women were given uh, the same math test but in one condition, they were told this is a math test that tends to reflect gender differences. Women do not do as well on this test as men. Um, in the other condition, they were told this is a unique kind of math test, and we have never found gender differences on this test. People tend to perform equally well regardless of gender. In the condition where they were told gender differences existed, women did much worse on the test than men. But on the exact same test, when it was framed as not having gender differences, women performed equally well. And similar effects have been found dealing with race. So bringing in participants who are black and white, and they were told that something either was or was not diagnostic of ability, um, like intellectual ability. When yeah. they were framed that way, they found differences. When it was not framed that way, there were no differences in performance. Same effects have been found for socioeconomic status. Um, so really any kind of aspect of your identity around which there are stereotypes. Mm -hmm. um, it can produce uh, underperformance in the group yeah. that is aware of those stereotypes. And that's really important if you think about how we frame standardized tests. Mm -hmm. What do you do at the start of a standardized test? Do you check off your gender and your race and yeah. all these identity aspects that are related to stereotypes? Um, there's also evidence that uh, stereotype uh, threat can be transmitted by the people around us. So for example, one research study looked at elementary school teachers, and when they looked at um, women teachers who were math anxious versus women teachers who were not, um, in the classes where the teacher was math anxious, at the end of the year, the girls in the class also thought of their math ability as being lower than they had at the start of the class. It did not affect boys. Having a male teacher who was math anxious did not affect anyone. But for girls, I think because they were primed through that kind of stereotype about girls and math, mm -hmm. um, having a math anxious teacher kind of ended up leaching into their own views of themselves and their opportunities. Yeah. And so I think we, um, without thinking of it, we uh, accidentally kind of transmit these stereotypes yeah. through our behaviors, sure. the way we talk about subjects. Do you think females, because we produce more estrogen and also just are very more hormonal, do you think that plays into our stereotype threats and like why our performance can be skewed a lot more so than men? I think, I think it has more to do with the persistence of stereotypes around us and our awareness of them. Okay. So anyone can experience stereotype threat. Um, and in fact, uh, depending on the context, it, it can occur in kind of any any gender or race if it is that part of your identity that is viewed as being not as good in that particular domain. Mm -hmm. um, so I think there's even been research on uh, like rapping and comparing race and finding that white rappers experience stereotype threat um, <laughs> because it, of, of stereotypes in that space. So it's not only certain domains or certain yeah. kind of genders or races, 
Um, but it just needs to be a domain where there are stereotypical views about your identity not being as good at that thing as other people. Gotcha. We kind of Yeah. As we just touched base on stereotype threat, um, when educators feed into these stereotypes and their own biases, um, how can this neg negatively affect student achievement and mental health overall? Yeah, it, I mean, it can have a huge impact, like I said, with those elementary school teachers who were mm -hmm. unaware that they were transmitting their own anxieties into mm -hmm. their students. Um, I think a lot of the ways that we talk about ourselves or even try to reassure people. So, um, you know, often when a parent has struggled with math and they have a kid who's struggling, they'll say something like, oh, don't worry, I was bad at math too. You know, our family yep. just doesn't get math. <laughs> Um, but what that is transmitting is this kind of fixed mindset, mm -hmm. for one, that math is a thing you either have or don't have. And if you're bad at math, you're always going to be bad at math. Um, and for two, it, it's discouraging the student. It's kind of giving them a way out. It's saying, don't even worry about building your skills. You're yeah. just going to be bad at it. So you might as well <laughs> give up. Um, and often those things are said uh, with good intentions. You know, mm -hmm. the parent is usually trying to be comforting to the child when they say something like that. Um, and teachers, by the way, say those things too. Um, but it ends up having really disastrous effects for the student's motivation, the way they even think about the nature of intelligence. There's research on growth versus fixed mindset. And if you believe that intelligence is something that's malleable and can be changed, um, again, you tend to work harder, you tend to enjoy learning more, you tend to have greater success than if you think intelligence is something either you have or you don't, and there's not much you can do about it. So as a college professor, you work with students who are learning and discovering more about themselves daily. Um, how crucial is having a sense of belonging in a student's education and how can instructors encourage positive emotional well-being in the classroom? Yeah, I, I think belonging is so crucial because um, learning is hard and it involves risk taking. And if you mm -hmm. don't feel safe and comfortable in an environment, if you don't feel welcomed like you belong, then you're going to have a really hard time. Uh, doing a wide range of activities, yeah. <laughs> everything from raising your hand to contribute to a discussion to, mm -hmm. you know, being willing to share your work on a problem and find out if it was right or wrong. Mm -hmm. um, creating this environment where mistakes are a part of learning, I think, is really important. So mm -hmm. if you can create a classroom where students are comfortable going up and solving a problem on the board and not worrying if they get it wrong, that might sound like a, mm -hmm. you know, crazy idea, but I think that can be be done so that um, people know that making a mistake is normal as you're trying to learn something. Mm -hmm. And it's viewed as, you know, good, you're working on something that's appropriately challenging, and you're mm -hmm. working through it, as opposed to you got it wrong, that means you don't get it. Yeah. Um, and I think that's kind of illustrates across all types of classrooms and learning environments, how important it is to feel comfortable and safe. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I remember doing like games in elementary school with math problems and you would often be on a team and if you'd get it wrong, like the team would be like, no, which is like fair. I get it because you're working towards a goal and you want to win. Mm -hmm. But I feel like that was always so anxiety producing for me because I would be like, oh my God, I can't get this wrong because then my team's going to be mad at me. And then what if we lose mm -hmm. and it's my fault that we lost? And it's just like this whole thing. So I do think like removing that, um, just that like idea that if you get it wrong, like, it's your, like, it's your problem. Basically you have to figure it out. Like mm -hmm. that would be super helpful, especially at such a young age when you're still trying to mold, um, like how confident you are in your own education. Trial and error is never going to happen. So I feel like we shouldn't shy away from that. Yeah. Um, 
But our last question for you is, what advice would you give a student who may be struggling with motivation and how can they achieve uh, tremendous success? And also what advice would you give a teacher looking to increase student motivation and engagement? So from the student perspective, um, two of the most successful interventions consistently are giving students an opportunity to reflect on their own values. So the things that matter to them, um, and they don't have to be academically related. So if you really value your family or your community or arts or religion or music, whatever it is, um, having students do these um, reflections on, on their values, they're called value affirmation interventions, mm -hmm. and they've been shown to increase feelings of belonging, increase um, kind of persistence and confidence in whatever course the person's in. And that's something that you can do on your own without mm -hmm. someone intervening and kind of guiding you through the practice. And even in a class that is maybe not ideal, if the instructor is not creating the most welcoming environment, um, those reflections on your values can still have a positive impact because they kind of help recenter you and, and yeah. ground you in what you care about. The other one um, is called a utility value intervention. And that's where you reflect on how the thing you're learning matters for you in your life. Mm -hmm. So especially if you can see a direct connection, like, you know, learning fractions is going to be helpful because I love to bake and sometimes mm -hmm. I need to double recipes. Um, sometimes it's a little harder to see those direct connections. You know, you might not mm -hmm. see why calculus is going to matter in your life yeah. if you're not a math or physics major. Um, but then if you can at least see the value in, well, once I pass this course, that requirement will be gone. And it's really important for me to, you know, master this well enough that I can move on with my classes. Yeah. Um, on the flip side, those are both things that teachers can also help reinforce. So mm -hmm. um, you can help students see more value in the course just by making connections to the real world, talking about how the content can be useful in life, giving students opportunities to apply a theory or idea in their own lives and experiences. Mm -hmm. um, going back to the things we talked about, about creating a welcoming environment, increasing belonging. Um, I think the final thing is just listening to students too. So you have to have an environment where students feel safe offering mm -hmm. feedback. If, if it's um, not a welcoming environment, students may not feel comfortable giving you, you know, yeah. critical feedback. <laughs> um, but I have changed a course every semester based on the feedback I get from students. And they often share really fantastic ideas and things that I hadn't thought about, you know, um, I think we get so in our own silos of teaching that we're often not thinking about what other classes are doing, what other teachers are doing, what students' yeah. schedules and lives are like. Um, and so getting that feedback on how students are feeling and, and beyond just what their test scores are, but yeah. what the experience is like. Sure. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Lastly, this podcast would not be possible without the support of St. Clair Health. Please listen to the following ad. At St. Clair Health, we're always improving, building on our commitment to face the challenges of today, making an impact on the communities we serve so we can be stronger together. St. Clair Health, expert care from people who care. Thank you to all of our listeners for your support and thank you, Dr. Ritchie. Um, new updates coming soon. Reach out um, to at podcast at outreach.org for any feedback or episode ideas. Thank, Thank you. you. The views and opinions expressed in the Teens Tap In podcast represent the opinions of the hosts and their guests.
The views and opinions expressed by Outreach Teen and Family Services employees, donors, and volunteers are their own and do not necessarily reflect the view of Outreach Teen and Family Services or the show's sponsors. The content here should not be taken as counseling advice. The content here is for informational purposes only, and because each person is unique, please consult your mental health provider or physician for any mental health counseling or other medical questions. The podcast should not be used in any legal capacity whatsoever, including, but not limited to, establishing a standard of care in a legal sense or as a basis for expert witness testimony. No guarantee is given regarding the accuracy of any statements or opinions made on the podcast. If you find any error in any of the content of the podcast, please contact us at podcasts at outreachteen.org. Outreach Teen and Family Services, its sponsors, donors, and partners expressly disclaim any and all liability or responsibility for any direct, indirect, incidental, special, consequential, or other damages whatsoever arising out of any individual's use of, reference to, reliance on, or inability to use this podcast or the information presented in this podcast. Please go to www.outreachteen.org to see the complete notice and disclaimer for the podcast episodes.